0: We've been doing the practice of equanimity during our time here together, and I wanted to give you um, a fuller, more comprehensive view of what equanimity is all about. And so I'd like to talk about that specifically this evening, because it takes a large measure of that to live in this world full of its ups and downs, all the joys and the sorrows, and to do our practice on the cushion in this kind of intensive retreat where we need a, a very powerful skill set in order to be able to open to all the vulnerable places of our heart, all the confusing places of our mind, all the ups and downs as we explore this relationship of mind-body-heart and all the different ways it relates and has a cause-effect relationship on one another. To stay in balance and to maintain balance as we navigate this inner terrain, as we navigate the outer terrain of the world, our family, our job, our social life, our global responsibilities, it takes a huge amount of, this power of inner balance, to be able to face it in a way that we can see clearly, and not just for the matter of seeing clearly, but of course to be able to act skillfully in the world. This is a basic fundamental requirement of living, and it's sometimes amazing to me that since it's such a Fundamental requirement of living, it seems so obvious to me that it isn't presented to us earlier as in schools or in other ways uh, where we can receive good information like that. I think because we live in such a world that kind of glorifies intensity in a way. Intensity is a way of life where, in a way, you could see the world as, and part of us being in it, as intensity junkies. Unless it's really, really dramatic, then uh, it's not fun, or it's not worth living, or we can't feel it. And it's such a shame because it's getting to be so that I see with the, my own grandchildren, they, they need to have intensity in order to feel, and um, it's so sad. To see that. I came across these words, to see the world with quiet eyes, and that was such a breath of fresh air to me, a breath of um, quietness. Oh, that we could relearn that or come to see the preciousness and importance of that in a way that Maybe our world doesn't support so much these days. The subjective experience of equanimity is that. One of the ways that we can experience equanimity is to see the world with quiet eyes, with eyes that aren't inflamed by any kind of reactivity. We live in this electronically driven world so swiftly connected to an overwhelming countless number of opportunities to respond to the world in the opposite way not seeing the world in quiet eyes seeing the world with reactivity immediately upon seeing something we don't like in you know, some the where people are Starving in one place of the world, or uh, dying because of other conditions of the world, or um, there's a, quite a bit of injustice and inequality of course that even in our tone of voice of why is it this way there's I can feel in myself when I have that uh, tone of voice that there's there's some anger there, not just confusion but There's reactivity there, and why is it this way? It should be differently. So we're acting out of these deeply ingrained habit patterns. I'm not saying that um, just out of theory, but because I see that in my own mind and heart, how I can do that myself. These habit patterns of greed and of, of aversion of not seeing the world clearly come from a place of not having enough balance to open to it all and to receive it all with quiet eyes, with a quiet heart. All of this way of reacting out of deeply ingrained habit patterns stems from unwise consideration, uh, stems from ignorance, So we come from a reactive place a lot of the times in seeing the world, in receiving what the news of the world. And then, of course, then in acting that out in the world, instead of from a very strong, quiet inner balance where there can be a much more effective way of making change within ourselves, within the world. So those words, to see the world with quiet eyes, have been a guiding force in uh, inspiring me to do more of that, and inspiring people around me, close by, my children, my grandchildren, close friends in the community, to see that that can be a touchstone for us, to notice how we are in the world. Are we seeing the world with quiet eyes? Are we seeing ourselves with quiet eyes? They were first spoken by the Reverend Howard Thurman, an African-American. He co-founded and co-pastored the first interdenominational and intercultural church for the Fellowship of All Peoples, and that's in San Francisco, California. And so this is a reading from his collection of meditations. This particular selection is called Deep is the Hunger. Deep is the Hunger. How may one work in the world courageously and intelligently on behalf of a decent world without despair and complete fatigue? What are the resources for personal rehabilitation and renewal, that we may be able to look out on life with all its vicissitudes of cruelty, of transcendent joys, to look out on life with quiet eyes and a tranquil spirit. So I ask myself, and I ask you, my friends, how can we do this? Are we doing it when we Live out of those reactive places, those habit patterns that, if we're honest with ourselves, we can see the default pattern, the default setting of the mind and heart. It helps me to discern: am I drawing on a reservoir of inner quietude and balance from which harmony can be supported? from which harmony can be created? Or am I drawing upon these unhealthy habit patterns, these default settings of the mind, these what some uh, of my friends and students have called the cow paths of the mind, those deep ruts in the mind that are so easy to fall into because we just keep walking that same path. And those paths, get deeper and deeper, those ruts, those routines get deeper and deeper, and they're so easy to just fall into those as a default setting of reacting in the world. But now we're working on other patterns, new wholesome patterns of mind, where when we do them over and over and over again, they can become the new pathway in the mind. The Buddha said, what a person reflects upon over and over again, to that his or her mind will incline. What a person reflects upon over and over again, to that his or her mind will incline. And so when we do these practices, for example, of being mindful over and over again, no matter what's happening, our hearts can more easily incline there it can incline there without effort, effortlessly be aware. When we do the practices of loving-kindness or equanimity, as boring as it can get sometimes, repeating and repeating and repeating, one day you will find, and many people have told me this who have practiced equanimity, for example, or metta, and I know myself from my own experience that we can come to an experience that we have been rehearsing on the cushion over and over and over again. And somebody can come in front of us and act out something that previously we would have gone to a place of judging or criticizing or striking back. But we're able to be with it with a big heart and a non-reactive mind. We're able to say, okay, this, this is happening right now. This is how it is right now. And instead of acting out, we can have a moment of equanimity from which we're seeing the world with quiet eyes and from a place of uh, being able to respond more skillfully. So again, I want to repeat over and over again, equanimity is is not about being a doormat. It's not about being... Resign to how it is right now. It's just about, in most cases, taking a moment to see how it is clearly before doing anything, before saying anything. And so it includes taking action. But before taking action, it includes that very important moment, sometimes hours, sometimes days, sometimes years, of assessing how it really is and then taking the correct action. So it's facing the outer world and engaging with it skillfully, easefully, with patience. That takes a lot of strength. It's a lot easier to strike back out of our default setting habit pattern. It takes a lot more strength, a lot more courage to be equanimous and take action from there or not take action. We forget sometimes that it's possible and probably more skillful in many cases to take no action at all. So that can become a choice with equanimity instead of striking out, striking back. So that's what the outer experiences, the outer events of the world, and then what about the inner events, facing the inner world, as we do here, exploring the terrain of our hearts and minds, takes a huge amount of equanimity. We develop equanimity quite naturally when we uh, practice mindfulness. It's said that with mindfulness, all of the beautiful qualities of mind uh, are developed. They're nearby. They are. They are supporting mindfulness. So with every moment of mindfulness, equanimity is nearby. It's being developed, and the other factors that uh, Deborah talked about last night: energy, joy or delight, concentration, tranquility. When mindfulness is. Done with continuity, all of these factors are developed. And so when we face the inner world through the training of our hearts and minds, equanimity is, is nearby, it becomes stronger and stronger. But we also need to practice equanimity as a Brahma Vihara. I find that it's very useful to do that, it's very supportive. It allows us to see more deeply in our hearts, in our minds, to see more clearly what's going on without the lens of reactivity. Our teacher, our, one of our teachers, my main teacher, Sayada Upandita, would say now and then, what color glasses are you wearing today, Yogi Kamala, when I would come in for interview in other words, what are you seeing the world through? You may be seeing what's going on out there, but are you seeing the lens that, is, that you're wearing? And that could be some form of attachment or aversion. And so in our practice of exploring the terrain of the mind and the heart, it is about seeing the things that we normally don't see Sometimes they're not so obvious, but they become obvious when the mind and heart get quieter. In a very down-to-earth way, equanimity means not being thrown off balance by events beyond our control. Not being thrown off balance by events beyond our control. If we look at it realistically, objectively, what has already happened in the moment is beyond our control. We may have an effect on what ensues after that by how we respond to it or even how we take it in. But because it's already happened, it's beyond our control. And a lot of it, we want to just go in there and turn it around and fix it. And we may, of course, have great influence on how We can change it for the future. But a lot of the times, if I look at my own heart honestly, I'm talking about, why did it have to be that way? Why is it this way now? And it's a lot of useless energy being expended. So it's not rushing into reaction out of compulsion to fix it or to get even, or out of an uninvestigated judgment or opinion about what's happening, or about someone. It's standing in the center of things, in a very high place of equanimity, and seeing all sides before we... There's at least two sides to a story. And oftentimes, when we're not in balance, or we're not standing in the middle... To be able to be in that kind of balance. We're not seeing all sides clearly. Sometimes this uh, place of being balanced is described as to see without being caught by what is seen or to hear without being caught by what is heard. A lot of times we just fall into our own judgments and opinions about it. Instead of staying grounded in the power of just taking the time to observe in that kind of easeful, spacious balance. In the Dhammapada, which is a collection of verses by the Buddha, there is a metaphor of a rock. A lot of metaphors are used with regard to equanimity. And this one is of a rock where it said, as a solid mass of rock is not stirred by the wind, so a sage is not moved by praise and blame. Sometimes the metaphor is as a noble mountain with a very wide base that's able to withstand all the weather patterns that come upon this mountain. There's balance, there's stability, there's steadiness in that wide-based mountain. Sometimes the metaphor is of a sky or space which can contain anything. It can contain the dark and the light, the heat and the cold, the feathers, the light feathers of birds, the heavy metal of rocket ships and airplanes. And the mind can also be like that. It can contain all of that. It has this bigness when it's, when it's seen in its natural state. It has this bigness, this spaciousness, which can contain all the diversity of this world, which doesn't push anyone out because of their uh, social uh, structure, because of their color, because of their uh, financial resources or lack of it, because of their not being well, uh, because of anything. It can contain the dualities and the diversities of this world, this big, balanced heart. It's infused with loving kindness, with that kind of care that, doesn't push anything out, that has an equality of caring towards everything. It's why the loving-kindness practice is structured in the way it is, to be able to offer the loving-kindness to those that are easiest for us first, and then goes on to the more difficult. And as we keep doing the loving-kindness practice, we're able to see that in the end, when loving-kindness is fully developed, there's an ability to offer loving-kindness to the difficult person and to the loved one or benefactor or to the neutral person or to oneself and to see that the love that's offered to all of those beings is the same kind of unconditional love. It's not different. The quality of our heart Offering love is the same towards an enemy as it is towards a friend. And that may seem like a high bar, but that is because of the boundarylessness that comes through equanimity being woven into loving kindness. It's what allows that boundarylessness, that unconditionality, that ability to hold all the diversities of the world with great care, in a big heart. This is from the venerable Achan Sumedo. The mind is like space, or the heart is like space. There is room in it for everything or nothing. We always have a perspective once we know the space of the heart, Armies can come into the heart and mind and leave. Butterflies, rain clouds, or nothing. All things can come and go through without us being caught in reaction or resistance. This is the big-hearted balance, the heart of seeing things with equality. It's a heart that can hold it all, that empowers loving-kindness to promote welfare and goodwill to all beings, not just to whom we prefer. But it's usually the balance part that we think about when we hear the word equanimity and we forget about the bigness part. The bigness part, the spaciousness part of equanimity is just as potent as the balance part. Because sometimes we get this idea that equanimity is like standing on a razor's edge and we're really balanced on that razor's edge. But if we move a little bit to the left, we'll fall over. If we move a little bit to the right, we'll fall over that way. Equanimity, on the other hand, is about having a very wide stance. It's like that huge mountain that has that kind of unshakable steadiness. It has that inclusivity that doesn't leave anything out. The strength to include everything and everyone, but also the balance. So we've seen this kind of quality of big-heartedness, of even-mindedness, in people we admire. And one of those people for me is Mother Teresa of Calcutta. She needed a lot of this quality in order to do her work because every day it was part of her intention to go out in the beginning herself, but later she had many people going out to the streets of Calcutta and all over the world in places uh, where there was strife, which we can find anywhere in the world. To the sick, to the dying, to the orphans, to take them to a place where they could die or heal with integrity, to treat everyone with equal regard. She didn't make that an outward uh, intention, like she said that to everyone, but she just did that. She just went out and took people and cared for them, treated them all with equal regard, knowing that everyone deserves our compassion and care, the, the friend and the foe alike. I was so inspired by Mother Teresa in my life since I was a small girl and since I came to know of her. and. Um, On a dear friend's recommendation, when I was in Calcutta once, I visited the orphanage that she set up in Calcutta. And it's a beautiful, very clean, uh, big building that she was able to acquire. And when I went in, um, one of our friends, a student friend of ours, said, be careful, Kamala, you might want to come home with one of those orphans. They're so beautiful. It's really true. So on, on one in one part of the building, I went in, and all these beautiful little girls and little boys with those big brown Indian eyes, and beautiful dark skin, shiny skin, and that beautiful dark hair, and um, they were so happy, so well taken care of, well fed, clean, bathed. They're nurseries and their places where they learned were filled with educational things um, that helped them to understand their minds, train their minds. They learned uh, mantras and chants and things like that to do things with their heart uh, that were beneficial and also to train the mind. And they were cared for by these beautiful nuns. And then I was taken to another place in the orphanage which was just as bright and beautiful and clean, and the happiest nuns were there. And in that place were the uh, children, sometimes old already, meaning that they could be in their early twenties or their teens, but they were ill in some way, mentally challenged or physically challenged. And one that I took particular, uh, paid particular attention to was in his early 20s, but he was laying in a big playpen, and he was um, physically and mentally challenged. But the nuns took care of him as joyfully and as caringly as the nuns on the other side that took care of the children who were well and, and happy and had all their faculties and not challenged as much as the ones on the other side. So I saw this way that um, that kind of care for all, no matter what the situation is, required not just love, but this kind of equanimity, this kind of treating everyone with equal regard. That's an important part of this unconditionality of our love, and so it's said that equanimity leads the way for compassionate action and we could see that in reality in places like that. One of our teachers, um, Manindraji, i mention mentioned him a lot because I've had a lot of contact with him, a lot of teachings with him. He was a person that included everyone all the time. Um, it didn't matter where they came from or what, religious background or, of course, cultural background or um, whatever, whoever they were, he loved them all and included them in the offering of his teachings. And so one time when he was staying at our house recovering from some uh, surgery that he had, I was there with my uh, children and... um, This was before Steve and I uh, came together in our lives. And um, there was a knock at the door, and it was a young man in a white shirt, and he was doing his uh, job, his responsibility of going through the neighborhood and offering the teachings on the Bible. He was giving some Bible study. And my young teenage daughter answered the door, and he was a young missionary and a nice young man. And he wanted to offer the teachings to my daughter. So my daughter came to us, and Manindra was sitting at the table. And um, here he was, you know, just steeped in the Buddhist traditions. And uh, she asked me, she asked him, and Manindra said, Yes, of course, you should learn the Bible. The Bible has good things to teach you. I have read the Bible. And I have read and loved the Beatitudes that were taught in the Bible. You should study the Bible. Invite this man here. And so the man came to the house, the young man came to the house and offered the teachings of the Bible to my daughter. But I did notice that one day, you know, as Menindra was passing through with his bald head and his white robes and his, you know, the way he obviously... Looked odd in our culture, very different. And so the young man, according to what my daughter uh, said, asked who that person was, and she said, Well, that's my mother's teacher, and he's a Buddhist. And um, he I think there might have been some fear in his heart about it and wondering, you know, are is she going to go to hell in a handbasket or something, you know <laughs> with uh, these Buddhist teachings. And so, anyway, she did report that to both of us. But, you know, Manindra just held that with an open heart and wasn't critical or anything, just saw, well, that's how it is for that person. You know, could see many, many conditions beyond that moment of how that person was raised, the, the community and society, the family, experience that he had had, probably, I imagine, that's what Manindra was seeing. So he still could include that person in his heart. He would always say to live the life fully, and he certainly did, fully in terms of just big enough, full enough to open to whatever was being presented at the time. A person like this can see the world with quiet eyes, without judging or criticizing, without pushing away or making one separate from that person because that person sees it differently than we do, not being thrown off by events out of his control. There are all kinds of different things happening in this world. There are, of course, different cultures, different religions. There are people who eat and people who don't eat, people who are sick and people who are healthy. Can we hold it all? That's the question that equanimity asks of us. Another way that equanimity is described is resting the mind before it falls into extremes. When it goes into the extremes of judging, criticizing, hating, insisting that it be otherwise, wanting what is unrealistic, closing down in denial. These are all forms of reactivity. This reactivity is called the far enemy of equanimity. We can see it easily from afar, When the mind is not in extremes and there is a balance and spaciousness present, it doesn't mean that nothing is going on inside. It's not a cold aloofness or emotional emptiness. This cold aloofness or emotional emptiness is apathy. It's indifference. That's the near enemy of equanimity. It's when we don't feel connected. It's when there is this kind of... um, Uh, not caring in a way. But with equanimity, there is a deep connection. There's a deep connection because of the ability to open fully to what's going on, not close down to it, not just open to it, but to really connect with it, to feel what's going on in a very intimate heart way. And uh, then we see it really clearly. We see it for how it is. On the other hand, apathy or indifference is when actually when we close down or there's such an aloofness that we feel empty inside about it. Um, We don't care. So that's the big difference between the two. But actually equanimity can lead the way, that kind of open connectedness that feels what's happening very intimately, it can lead the way for a lot of warmth to happen, for really connecting with what's going on and then being able to respond, even if the response isn't talked about or it doesn't come out of one's actions or words, but it's felt. And even when it's felt, there can be a melting uh, between Two people or to families or to societies. I raised uh, three daughters and a son, and the daughters were not as easy as my son. <laughs> no, the other way around. Yeah, not as easy as my son. And I saw through raising them that there were lots of times that they had it was their need, I don't know if it's every daughter's need, but it's, it was their need to push the mother away, to push me away. And it took me a little while, but then I learned that they really wanted to experience who they were without my influence around them. So there were a lot of times when there were challenges uh, so that they would act out and push me away and strike out at me with their words. And um, it would really, really hurt, of course. You know? And when I was not in a place of equanimity, which I must admit was more than 50% of the time, <laughs> when I was not in that place, I would strike back with my words and, and, uh, or with my emotions. And um, it wouldn't lead to anything really good except, you know, try to control them a little bit, which then they hated even more. But when I was able to have some balance of mind and have some space in my own heart about what was happening, not striking out, I was able to see their suffering and kind of really melt when I saw that, to be able to see their suffering meant that I could have some compassion for what was going on in their hearts. And then a lot of times just having the compassion for them actually led to having more compassion for myself. And so it really helps that a balanced mind can lead to that kind of opening where some compassion can come out. Because it's said that the precursor to compassion is really seeing the suffering, really seeing the suffering in another being. We can't really see the suffering unless we're balanced, unless the heart is open. It's not pushing the suffering away or denying it or closing down because it's too hard to take. So there can be the usual ups and downs of life, sometimes intense, sometimes subtle. There are what are called the eight vicissitudes of life, usually associated with this teaching on equanimity. And they are praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, or joy and sorrow, and fame and disrepute. And all of those happen, if you, if we look back on our own lives, we can see that All of that has happened in one way or another, in some intensity or some subtlety. And if it hasn't happened yet that we know about, it's sure to be part of our lives or part of people's lives near to us. So is it possible when there's praise, when there's gain, when there's joy, when there's fame, is it possible to open to that and receive that and be with that without being attached to it? Is it possible when there's blame and loss, when there's pain or disrepute, is it possible to be with that without pushing away, without closing down or denying or resisting because it's uncomfortable? It doesn't mean that we don't take action about any of these things, but it just means that We don't have the kind of reactivity that leads to uh, disharmony within us, disharmony around us. So it's not such a big drama when we live in this world of equanimity. And we find that we can be more attuned to the subtleties of life. And it's something that will probably... Need more and more as we face the future of more uh, quickness that goes on the speed that we must seem that we must need more and more of um, recently we I got a new computer, and so on that new computer, you know you just press something and everything comes up so quickly when I went back to the other computer I was using, it took just a few seconds more. But <laughs> I noticed how, you know, it was so much better when it was so quick. But the, the downside of that is there's so much more to attend to now. You know, there's so many more things that I can, that are brought up in my view. And um, I'm also working on a lot of renunciation of not needing to do everything of not needing to respond to everything that I see with attachment, especially, or aversion. So the mind and heart can make room for it all without reacting to pleasant experiences with attachment, to unpleasant experiences with aversion. And in this way, we can face the ups and downs with patience, with a a brave heart. I think that in all of our lives, we are able to see so clearly and easily how much um, loss there is, Um, at least in our own lives. There are a lot many people passing away in the last year than there have been in the last previous ten years for us, or maybe the last two years and the previous ten years. And I hearken back to Manindra's um, saying to me all the time, this is how it is. This is the law. Birth and death arise and pass away. Sickness and health arise and pass away. This is part of all of life. He would say over and over again, with a lot of love, not with a A teaching like, you know, you have to understand this, but with a lot of love and wisdom, this is how it is. Can you surrender to that? Because if you can, then there'd be much more ease in your heart. And with that ease, ability to respond with more clarity. It takes courage, not just wisdom but it takes the courage of love to open to the truth of the impermanence of life. It takes that too to open to the vulnerability of life, the suffering that we see. It takes a lot of love and courage to open to the conditionality of it all, the selfless nature of it all. Sometimes when we open to that, it gets scary. It takes a lot of courage and love. When I went to visit Manindra, before he passed away, it was a few months before, but he was already in his hospice months, and I would talk to him about um, the gratitude I have and I had for having a teacher and having him in my life. And um, the sadness, you know, because I could see that I I wouldn't see him again. I would understand that. And even on his deathbed was offering the teaching. This is the law. This is the Dhamma. This is how things are. This body won't last. This body I am in won't last. The mind is shining, but the body won't cooperate. (laughs) So, this body will pass away sometime. And so this is how it is. So I can... Of course I cried when he died, you know, it was really, really sad, but um, it wasn't with this reckless abandon, it was like, yeah, it's true. There is, when a teacher dies, when anyone dies, when a child dies, there are tears. But we don't have to be lost in that suffering. We can use it as a strength, as a teaching. Their life, their death, can be part of our strength, part of our opening. We can surrender to that law. When I was in India with him the time before, this last time when he was, on his deathbed, so to speak. I spent a lot of uh, time with him traveling around. And one time uh, we were in this place in a on a hill town um, where we were enjoying some coolness in the hot uh, months of India. And we needed a car to get down to Bombay or Mumbai, as they call it now. And so we were trying to hire a car. And this um, just this story is about just how he took everything mm. in stride. So we were trying to hire this car, and we interviewed. Um, there were, you know, people would know that we're trying to hire a car, so they kind of all line up, all these little white cars that are in India. Those of you who've been in India know how it is there. And we... We took a look at the cars to see if they were in good order, you know, heard the engine. We uh, interviewed the drivers to make sure that they were, they were quiet, you know, that they, were, uh, they looked smart enough that to, mm-hmm. to take us to where we were going and they were honest and all of that. So we finally uh, hired a car and a driver. And so there was the car, the driver, Manindra. Uh, supposedly sitting in the front seat. And there were three of us in the back seat, myself and two friends. And so we got in the car and a, another person got in, another big guy. And we were wondering, well, why Why is this person here? So I asked Manindra, well, is he a passenger or are we taking him too? Manindra was in the front. And Manindra talked in his Hindi language and uh, he turned back. He said, oh no, he said, he is here because the driver does not know the way. And this person <laughs> knows the way. We were going to the airport. And so I said, but Manindraji... And so Manindra said, this is India. This is India, you know. So then we're, we're going down the road, and the road is, you know, of course it's downhill, so the car's going at a speed as if it's in neutral. And... Usually in other taxis we're going so fast that we have to close our eyes, you know. So this car is going very, very slow, and Menindra is just being himself in the front, just looking around. Everybody's passing us; these big buses are passing us. So I said, Menindraji, what's going on? It's, uh, this car is so slow, you know. And Menindraji um, talks to the driver, and then he turns back to me and he says. Oh no, gas! And I said, Manindraji, no gas, and you know, because he was the one who actually interviewed everyone. So I was a little bit like, Why did we choose this person? And so Manindraji turns back and he said to me, "This is how it is. This is India, you know." So someone in the last retreat said to me. I told this story, and they said, pointing to his head, this is India. (laughs) It's just how it is, how it goes sometimes. So when we have that place in our minds that can be like space, like the sky, we can hold everything. It's, It's not just the balance, but the bigness. It's not pushing anything out. It's having the space in the mind to hold everything. It allows the transience of whatever is passing through. It allow, then it allows the ability to see that everything is transient, to see that nothing is static or permanent, to really deepen into the wisdom of life. If our minds are spacious like that, it has this ability to notice with that kind of honesty that leads to liberating wisdom. So we notice that about the inner events. We notice that about the outer events of the world. We take action when we need to take action. His Holiness, a great model for navigating his world with both equanimity and compassion, says, in that state of mind, you can deal with the situation with calmness and reason while keeping your inner happiness we're able to respond with intelligence instead of ignorance, the ignorance of being blinded by our reactivity, being blinded by ignorance itself. His Holiness also says that he calls this an inner disarmament. You could call this practice inner disarmament, His Holiness says, in that a well-developed tolerance makes you free from compulsion to counterattack free from compulsion to counterattack. Sometimes when I have already counterattacked, when an event has already happened in the situation out there, and I've noticed that, oh dang, you know, I forgot to put the duct tape on my mouth, and I've (laughs) already said something. And then I realize, okay, it's already done, done is done, but now I have a second chance. And the second chance is turning the attention inward and looking at what's happening at my own heart at that moment. Is there still this compulsion to counterattack, to do more? Is there still um, even anything more subtle than that, some criticizing, some judging? some way of pushing that person out of my heart or that situation out of my heart. So the second opportunity, the second chance is to turn to my heart and to say, here too may I develop equanimity. In relationship to what's going on in my heart, may I open to this with some balance. Otherwise, I add just more and more layers of suffering to my Self, and then eventually to, towards people around me. So that's why it's so important to develop this equanimity, not just outwardly, but towards one's own heart, to the places where we probably have already reacted. And our work is not complete unless we do that as well. So this is not a precarious balancing like on a razor's edge, where there's a kind of stiffness and rigidity and fear inherent in that, that if we lean too much to one way or another, we'll make a mistake, we'll fall off. We will be, of course, imbalanced. But it's a wide, steady, stable, grounded stance. It's said that the function of equanimity is maintaining steadiness of mind. The function of equanimity is maintaining steadiness of mind. And so that's why in the descriptions they talk about the mountain a lot, the ability to uh, open to the extremes of hot and cold, of thunder and lightning, sunshine and darkness, all of that. This is all part of life. The same for us, that we're able to open to praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute. Can we have resilience with that? The heart and mind of equanimity has a lot of steadiness, has a lot of resilience. Intelligence can come from that place. Wisdom can come from that place. When my uh, youngest daughter, our youngest daughter, Steve helped me to raise my youngest one, and um, she was graduating on this day, she came to my room, our room, and as she always did since she was a little child, she would have her her head in my lap or in my arms, oftentimes when I was meditating. I would just sit up in bed and that's how my meditation was. Um, And so she came into the room. She put her head in my lap when I was doing some sitting practice. And um, she was graduating that evening and also leaving the house to go live with her, her, um, her father. And so... I thought of the times as she was in my lap, the times when she was just a baby, and I would uh, nurse her while I was sitting. Um, like Deborah does now, lovely to watch. And um, the times as she grew up, you know, all her sweetness, and then it turned into something else in the <laughs> teenage years and you know when she would drive the car, and I don't know how many times did she bump the car. He probably remembers more. And um, the times when she didn't come home at night, and we had to call all our friends, and I called the police department to see if there were any reports, and we all went up. Her father, Steve, and I went up to find her and get her, and, oh, you know, there were other times... Too much to go into, (laughs) but I remembered that as she was sitting and with me, with her head in my lap, and now her her body, which is you know almost five eleven or maybe more, with her high heels she loves to wear, she's well over six feet, and so her legs dangling off the bed, remembering the sweetness in those times, and remembering like the hard times and, oh, wow, tears. And on one side, the tear is like, don't go, I'm going to miss you. you know. And the other side, the tear is like, please go. <laughs> it's time, <laughs> it's time. So just that experience of being able to hold both, to hold both sides of our heart, the, the sweetness and the, and the sourness, too, the bitterness of life, and be able to be okay with all of that and still not reject what's going on inside or outside, still have a great deal of care and love and the wisdom to know what leads to the best in all of this and the wisdom to avoid what will lead to what's not so good. So this is equanimity. It's said that of all the Brahma-viharas, this is the crown of all of them, the king or the queen of all of the Brahma-viharas. Really important, probably the most important. As Deborah pointed out last night, All of those uh, seven factors of enlightenment lead to that deep abiding equanimity that is essentially important for liberation. It's said that equanimity is the doorway to the unconditioned, to very deep abiding peace. So how can we open to the outer conditions of the world? and the inner conditions of this world inside of us and live our lives with great ease. Maybe after practicing, you'll be able to really answer that for yourselves. This is a poem to end with, and the poem is called The Way It Is. It's by William Stafford from his book of poems called The Way It Is. And so I'm <clears throat> uh, I'm not reading the whole thing. There's a thread you follow. It goes among things that change. People wonder about what you are pursuing. You have to explain about the thread. But it is hard for others to see. While you hold it, you cannot get lost. Tragedies happen, people get hurt or die. You suffer and get old. Nothing you can do can stop times unfolding. You don't ever lose the thread. So let's sit for a moment. May the teachings of equanimity not be lost on us. May the thread of equanimity be part of our practice and guide us through our lives. for listening to the Dhamma. And we would like to request that you um, continue to honor the noble silence and to keep your commitment to noble silence. One person's breaking of silence, even if it's just a little, can affect so many. And sometimes it gives kind of a... um, unspoken permission for others to speak. And so we lose it. We lose the beautiful container of our retreat. So please keep your commitment to the silence. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.